The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, all. Greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Rob Stutzman, veteran political strategist, uh, knowledgeable about all things politics, and we got a few things to ask him. So, Rob, thank you very much for joining us today. Good to be uh, with you guys. Our, before the podcast, Tim and I were talking about the uh, Lincoln Project, and uh, you know the Republican secret handshake, I think. So we're hoping you could tell us about what's going on with uh, what happens post a Link- Lincoln Project scandal, which is what we're seeing now. Yeah, so it, it, the Lincoln Project and frustrated people like me last year is that they really weren't engaged in the internal battles of the Republican Party. They just had become an anti-Republican Party entity. So essentially a Democrat super PAC. And, you know, we can see Chuck Schumer's Pack was giving them money. They got engaged in Senate races. Uh, it, they lost this focus of trying to fight for the Republican Party. They more or less just bailed on it. Um, so obviously taken down by scandal. It appears it appears they 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 pretty much became that which they despised <laughs> with Trump. They were they were crass. It looks like they covered up uh, abuse from one of their principals and they grifted their donors. Um, it, it was very Trumpian at the end of the day. Uh, but, you know, going forward, it's what's clear is we're going to have some major primary battles. You know, if Trump comes after these, for instance, 10 Republicans in the House that voted to impeach, including California's own David Valadeo, if he tries to come after them in the primary, then that's going to be those are going to be battlegrounds for the future. And as far as I'm concerned, the soul of the Republican Party, uh, Lincoln Project wasn't anywhere near being involved in any of that. They didn't get involved in any Republican primaries. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, why not go in and try to defeat her when she, last year didn't do it. Uh, last year when Republicans uh, took out Steve King, Congressman Steve King, a racist in Iowa, got defeated in a primary. Lincoln Project, nowhere to be seen in that. It was a super PAC set up by some other operatives. Um, so I think going forward, I don't know that Lincoln Project really had an important role to play in uh, the sorting out that's going to have to happen if the Republican Party is even going to survive. Uh, but the battleground is going to be these primaries. And that, that's, where, that's, where engage, that's where the engagement will happen. What, what about candidates on the far right? Do you see Republicans and Democrats getting together to beat them up? I mean, you see a joining of Reefs and Dems to, get, to rid the Republicans of the of the far right wing? I don't know the Democrats have any interest in it. Uh, I think they're more than happy to promote the, the nuttiness of a Marjorie, you know, Taylor Greene um, and use that as a, as, a, as a way to try to claw voters, particularly suburban voters away from Republicans in general. Uh, so this is, you know, if, if this is gonna get fixed, it's gonna have to be by Republicans. And those that stay in the party. And look, I've had a lot of friends, colleagues that have had enough and they've left the party, which I can understand. I totally can understand that. Uh, the problem is, though, if you're still center right in what you want to see uh, in terms of governance, you know, there needs to be a center right or a more conservative party. That's the way American politics work. Uh, so it still, to me, is definitional about, well, what's that party going to be? 
what's the Republican Party going to be? And if it were to split at some point, uh, then you get, you know, then Democrats are, are set to, to rule with majorities, I think, for a significant amount of time until such a time as centrist Democrats would leave the Democrat Party to be part of something that might be more centrist. But if I personally, I think if that happens, it's going to happen over the course of the coming decade, not in the next election cycle or two. Part of this, a lot of this actually was the intense anti-Trump sentiment out there. Well, Trump is out of office, off Twitter. I guess his kids are still on Twitter. I saw, I think this morning that uh, I think Eric Trump has 6.7 million followers, but okay, so his kids are out there, but with Trump elder gone, uh, does that mean the need for a Lincoln, par- a Lincoln Project kind of an organization, aside from the scandals, but does that mean there's gonna be a need for them in the future? Was this sort of a unique event that happened in 2020 and we aren't gonna see it replicated? Well, I think uh, it, it still goes back to I insist we didn't need them even last year. They, they, Lincoln Project was a catharsis, right? So they went on MSNBC and would ream Donald Trump. And people liked that they were really former Republicans, no longer Republicans. They made ads that rented space in Donald Trump's head. No question. The site, if they had any then they had any utility. It was the psychological warfare that they uh, per- perpetrated upon the president. But they didn't spend their ad money in a way that made any sense in terms of voter contact. And if their stated mission, as was originally, well, originally was stated, their New York Times op-ed when they founded themselves, was to try to convince Republicans not to vote for them. Well, their, their method of ad making didn't do that. It, it was, there, there was no permission structures, nothing you would normally do in persuasion to try to convince people to do that. But what it did do was raise $90 million from left of center donors who loved the messaging and loved the fact that there was former Republicans doing this. And that's where I go back. It, it turns into a grift. And now we know what the payouts were, you know, millions upon millions upon millions to the founders. And I think had very little effect. So I go back to what what really mattered, if you look at what matters going forward, is what happened last year that didn't get any fanfare, didn't have any fawning from CNN or MSNBC anchors. And that was the tough work that was done, like in that Steve King district, to elect Randy Feenster in the primary and get rid of a white supremacist from the Republican conference in the House. That's the type of hard work in the field that's going to have to continue, that I think will be times 10 or 20 come 2022. And, you know, that. Stuff like that that happens that really matters really wasn't even celebrated last year uh, in the media. So uh, you mentioned the, the key point here about the Lincoln Project, is, which is that they raised $90 million or thereabouts. And it, from the reporting, it seems like a significant portion of that went to the principals and the companies that they are affiliated with. Now, I have to admit, I don't follow PACs and the fundraising and the usage of money from PACs that closely. You, you're familiar with PACs. Is that normal? Do, do PACs generally, does the money that a PAC raises, does only a third of that ultimately go into advertising and the rest of it goes into the pockets of the people running the PACs? I, frankly, I just don't know. But you obviously have that, that experience. Is that normal? So, I, no, I would say it's not normal for a PAC of that size. There are things that we call scam PACs where people are raising money um, online, essentially then putting it back into online fundraising and taking huge commissions off of it or paying their own you know, firms to raise the money. And we call it a scam pack. It never does anything except 
raise money and pay the people raising the money. Ooh, maybe Pax Weekly could get in on that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure there's an online seminar. Check YouTube, right? <laughs> <laughs> but a pack of this size with, is usually much more accountable to its donors. For instance, both in the on both sides of the aisle, uh, you know, there's leadership packs that are controlled by, in the Republicans' case, McConnell, and the Democrats' pay, uh, case, Schumer. Those t- those packs put far more money or led on the target money into advertising consultants still make plenty of money there's commissions on advertising it's fine to get paid a, a fee but the proportion uh where it appears i think it's like 60 percent. i think is what new york uh magazine reported 60 percent of the money went to consultants and overhead overhead i'm using air quotes uh it's not normal not when there's that much money involved the uh i saw from forbes magazine was they raised just shy of 90, 90 million, about 88.9 million or something. And about half of that went to the companies controlled by the founders or the founders themselves. So a huge proportion went to them directly. Correct. And it, it, I mean, when you know that going in, are there signed agreements and contracts? Is this all laid out contractually in advance or? No, there's, there's no one. They're not account. They weren't accountable to anybody. Uh, they're, they were raised in the money. They ran the organization themselves. They can basically de- decide who gets paid. I think, I think there's a lot we don't know yet. I mean, there are people that, uh, ha- that left the organization, whatever, I'm not even sure what that means, as they went along. And they paid, they paid a lot of money to some of those people. And then they signed non-disclosure agreements. So, you know, were the non-disclosure agree- agreements about, that's not normal. <laughs> this is not normal. There is no transparency here. Again, they, they became that which they despised. I mean, this sounds like the Trump Foundation, right? So, and, then, and now we know they lied. Well, it appears that they lied about not knowing about John Weaver's predatory advances on young men. Uh, the reporting again in New York Magazine says that principals did know last summer. Uh, other people have said that they, it was common knowledge. Uh, that was reported, I, I think, by the 19th. Amanda Carpenter, I think, had that reporting. Um, and then there was huge payouts after the election, and they signed NDA. So it's it's really pretty gross. Mm-hmm. Uh, millions of dollars went out the door. Um, it appears that they lied to the New York Times about when they first were aware of the Weaver allegations, and it it reeks of it reeks of a cover up. I mean, it's it's a real scandal. It's real corruption. Now you, I'm assuming you must know John Weaver, his name. I'd never even heard of him until all this broke. Uh, I mean, did you, you must've known him. Did you have any inkling that there was any weird stuff going on with him? Look, I, uh, I've, I've met John Weaver. I never worked with Weaver. Some of my best friends in the business worked with Weaver very closely, particularly around the McCain campaigns. Um, you know, there's the, the thing going around that Rove, you know, had made the allegation back in the early 2000s uh, about Weaver uh, being a uh, and predatory practice, I had never heard anything like this. I mean, the idea that it was common knowledge, I think, amongst you know, Republican circles, I don't think is 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 fair. But but it does appear that it was at least knowledgeable within the Lincoln Project last year. Uh, Rob, is it common in campaigns for uh, the the strategists or the con- the consultants? to also place the media, place the ads, and have a commission on the ad placement, as well as offering advice to the campaigns and strategy, that kind of thing? It is. It's, one of the, it's, the, ways, it's the way that media consultants and often the general consultant 
part of their compensation typically is off advertising commissions. Now, a lot of times those advertising commissions are, are capped, um, particularly on something like a $90 million uh, effort. Yeah. Uh, but no, no, it can, political consulting can be, can be very lucrative. There's no question. And, you know, that, and that is normal, both sides of the aisle. There's a campaign, I, you're probably familiar with it, uh, a lot of years ago now, but it was Clinton Riley, a campaign consultant strategist in San Francisco, and he did Prop 103. There are a bunch of initiatives, insurance related. But he, I remember the Prop 103 initiative particularly, and after the campaign ended, the financial disclosure statements came out. Turned out he was both the chief campaign strategist and the media buyer. And so he got paid basically to, he got a double whammy there, a big one too. I mean, the rumor among sure. the press, which are rarely accurate, but they heard it was 19 <laughs> to 20 million, you know? So it seemed to me after that, he sort of set a precedent. And I, He's like the Colonel Tom Parker of, uh, of, of political <laughs> Elvis Presley. <laughs> I don't, I only, I don't, I don't know if Clint was the first one to, to, to soak. Uh, part, part of the issue is, you know, well, state, in fact, well, statewide ballot measures in California are typically the most expensive campaigns in the country outside of presidential race. And so, yeah, I mean, some of the largest commissions probably ever made in political consulting have been on California ballot measures. But those consultants are still working for somebody. They're still, they're still donors. There's still a committee that's hired them. There's probably maybe some exception to that, but not, not, not a committee that would have that much money going through it. There were still, uh, whoever hired him, um, you know, still formed a committee, still controlled the organization, and he was, uh, he was still accountable. They might have gave him a great deal, but he was still accountable to somebody. Hey, let's switch gears for just a second and yeah. uh, talk about the recall <laughs> or the potential recall. So yeah. uh, a couple things going on, if it makes the ballot or when it makes the ballot, uh, at some point, people favoring the recall are going to have to come up with somebody that can replace Gavin. So I guess, is there anybody out there that you see of whatever party uh, that would be in a position to get that kind of support? Yeah, I, I think there are. I'm a little reticent to just start throwing names out at this point. It's yeah. early. But That's all the, we're, we're happy. To yeah, you, you, but let me answer the question this way. So this is deja vu for me because I lived this 18 years ago with the Davis recall and I worked for Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And we're, it's very similar in terms of the way some of this is unfolding. There's differences, but this aspect is similar to me so far, is that the recall effort, the signature gathering started very similarly. It was a very conservative, had a grassroots component to it. Just, you know, the Ted Costa anti-tax guys. And then Daryl Issa came along, a wealthy businessman getting into politics. I, I think at that point, a junior congressman. And he contributed seven figures to finish the job of gathering the signatures and all his intent was to run for governor. Well, he ended up never even being on the ballot. So my, it's not so much get him crying live. He on cried. Yeah. He realized that he had just bought a governorship for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a great Ed Muskie moment. Um, <laughs> see if anyone, <laughs> see if any listeners get the reference um, for a data saw, but I don't, it's not so much of the, of the proponents finding somebody it's once one, it's a more of a dynamic of once this qualifies, how does Gavin Newsom hold people back? And, and, and here's the other way to think about it. It's not, he, he's not on the ballot against these candidates. So it's not about him versus Kevin Faulkner 
or him against anyone else that would get in. It's about him versus yes or no. And right now the polling shows that the no vote is under 50%. So he, he's in trouble on his real life number. So what, here's what, so you got, say the Republicans run, there's Republican energy, some independent energy that would probably come into the high thirties, maybe 40% natural base for the recall. Well, what happens if a progressive runs a Bernie bro or an AOC type that sees a great opportunity now, the way campaigns work, build great name ID, probably raise a lot of money, uh, create a lot of energy around progressive issues that all of a sudden this week are starting to get some stop signs from Gavin Newsom, like banning fracking, single payer, things he doesn't really want coming to his desk now. Well, if you can get a progressive candidate going that can garner 18% of the vote, you're now at 50% on the question of the recall. And it's a combination of left and right and center type of voters. Well, once that happens, you get the Cruz Bustamani effect. What's the Cruz Bustamani effect? Well, Cruz Bustamani, 18 years ago, was the lieutenant governor who gave an ironclad statement at about this point in the timeline of the recall that I will not run for governor. Well, ultimately, of course, he ran for governor. He was on the ballot. And because his first became- press conference, his first press conference, he was <laughs> promised to raise taxes by $5 billion. <laughs> but he ran I'll because it became... Message. <laughs> it, it became evident. It became evident that the recall was going to pass. So if we get to that moment where it looks like it really could pass, I think you'll see, you'll see, you, you could very well see Democrats and more, you know, more than one Democrat get into this race, and then then the governor's probably pretty seriously in trouble. In in, in my view, he's got to keep it isolated to just the Republicans, and um, and maybe he will. And if he does, then I think he beats it back probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but that it's just not easy to do. They, it's just there's no political discipline in parties or with these governors like they're like they're used to be. Who would uh, on the Democratic on on the Newsom side to defend him? Who do you think would be the big bankrollers there? Is that a party issue? Closing ranks to support him? Are there big oh, I, donors? Well, you'll see you'll see the you'll see the unions roll in substantially. Yeah, I mean that's why it's interesting right now. His tension on trying to get the schools open because it's putting him, you know, at at some disagreement with the, the CTA, the Teachers Association, who would be an ally worth uh, millions of dollars, if not over $10 million, if he has to go through this political battle. He really needs them at his side. So we saw that with Davis. Um, unions really came in heavy. I think with Newsom, depending again how the field shapes up, I think Newsom would still draw quite a bit of support from the business community. And the important thing to remember on a recall is there's no contribution limits to defeat oh, a recall because oh, it's not a, it's not a candidate committee. It's a, it's a basically like a ballot committee, meaning there's no limit. So the governor has the ability to raise money without contribution limits to, to, to defeat the question of the recall. It's a huge advantage uh, that he would have. Yeah, sure. Um, and on another issue, moving around, uh, Javier Becerra, Join the Biden administration. Wants to. He has to get confirmed. I'm going to say, right. we'll get through there. First. Maybe. Uh, yeah. So, who replaces him here in California? Who do you think Newsom is going to pick? Now, last time uh, we put together this podcast or discussion with several consultants, who was um, who was uh, Newsom going to do to fill a seat, Kamala Harris' seat? And they all agreed it would be Alex Padilla. We thought, holy mackerel, he was like at the bottom of the list I had, but hey, everybody knew more. 
So now we thought we got you here on the griddle. So we thought we'd ask you. Um, I think I think it's <laughs> I think it's hard to say. I, I think as long as he took with appointing the U.S. Senate seat and then the Secretary of State seat, he had a pretty good plan for that. Once it happened, I think Shirley Weber was a very smart pick politically, Secretary of State um, for a lot of reasons. So I don't know, as much as he, we maybe were annoyed at how long he was waiting. I think he's got pretty good, good game on the appointment side. Uh, as we know, in Democrat coalition politics, you know, who haven't we appointed? Well, an Asian Pacific Islander. Uh, you know, there have been talks of like Assemblyman Rob Bonta. I, I think that's probably waned. Um, I think you probably want someone with more, maybe with more, could bring more stature, particularly if there's a recall ahead. Uh, so the name that I hear a lot is uh, California Supreme Court Justice Gordon Liu, which would be an interesting pick, kind of a non-political pick, but would probably satisfy uh, progressives to a degree and would satisfy the ethnic coalition uh -huh. uh, politics of the Democrat Party by putting an Asian Pacific Islander uh, on, the, on the court. There's, you know, Daryl Steinberg's name comes up, um, but, you know, it's been a rough winter on some homeless issues. Um, for him. Uh, but I think that'd be a reliable, safe, reliable pick that probably would feel comfortable. Adam Schiff seemed to be a hot front runner there uh, for a couple of weeks. And uh, that seems to have waned from what I'm hearing. So we'll see. And as you noted, heading into the discussion, you know, Becerra has to get confirmed, uh, which I think he will, but there's no question that the Republicans really have their sights set on him. Yeah. And no, there hasn't been one fish thrown back to the sea here from the Biden appointments. And, I, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't totally dismiss the notion that Joe Manchin or someone else, you know, wants to send one back. It just takes one Democrat, of course, to join the Republicans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and but Sarah, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting, rather political person to put in that position where you yeah. kind of I think you want to build bipartisan consensus. And he doesn't have a lot of background in healthcare other than his, his work in, in the House. So you know, that's true. And he, I had can, a bit, he had a little bit of a background in the law. Of course, he's a Stanford Law School. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he worked at a law firm, I think, for three years or worked for the AG, excuse me, for three years or so in the San Francisco office. But beyond that, he was in Congress for 20 years and he was a ranking right. member of Congress. So he's not doesn't strike me as the guy that you go to for state attorney general. But when Brown appointed him, the word at the time was it was either Becerra or maybe Dave Jones. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I thought he made pretty good sense as an AG pick. I, it's, it's, it's Biden putting him at HHS. Um, I think has some people scratching their, their heads. Uh -huh. um, I think there's other, other posts in the cabinet. It seemed like he would have been a more natural fit for. What's um, we have reapportion or redistricting coming up because we have yeah. the census data is going to be, uh, worked over and, and massaged and everybody is going to be a lot of folks like you and others, Paul Mitchelton, I know we talk to a lot, who's going to be involved in that. So what do you think redistricting as we look forward, what is this, what is this coming to this year? What can we expect on that? Are we going to lose a seat uh, in Congress? Well, Maybe we lose two seats. Well, I mean, the expectation is certainly that we will lose one congressional seat, which will be the first time in the state's history. I believe that we've shrunk in terms of our congressional delegation. Uh, last decade, we didn't add anyone. I think that was the first time in some time that we hadn't added anybody. So that says something about California, I suppose, right there, vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the country. So if we lose a seat, 
possibly we lose two. That would, that would really be interesting. Um, it, you know, it's, it, I rely, I rely a lot on people like Paul who really are ex, the expert cartographers and, and demographic experts. Uh, but it, 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 it you know, it, it, Charlie Cook's uh, outfit, Dave Wasserman had a, you know, speculatory maps out where the seat that goes away would be Mike Garcia, the Republican in CD25, which was the old Katie Hill seat, seat that Republicans picked up last year uh-huh. uh, and then and then held on to in the in the general. I mean, maybe it seems, it's got to come out of L.A. somewhere um, if there is a, a seat to be lost. But I would keep an eye on Orange County is interesting to me because, you know, the, the Democrats took, you know, three of those Orange County seats, well, held all four of them that were Orange County, lost two of them back this last cycle. But the Katie Porter seat, you know, who, and she defeated Mimi Walters in 2018, it seemed to be a very safe Republican seat. She took it from Mimi Walters, held on to it. But if the southern part of Orange County, which is very Republican and currently apportioned into the North San Diego, North San Diego district that Congressman Levine has, Daryl Ice is an old seat. If that part of Orange County gets combined back up into where Porter lives now in Irvine, that becomes a very Republican seat. And so, you know, she's, she's one of the real new stars, obviously, uh, of Congress for the Democrats. And I think she's the one that might have the most difficulty uh, having a seat drawn that uh, looks like she could easily retain it. Orange County oh, has changed dramatically also, just generally. Oh, yeah. Becoming, uh, yeah, like, it, well, every, everywhere. I mean, all the suburbs have been slipping away from Republicans uh, in spite of the, the ability to win some of those districts back in 20. It probably said more about just how bad the midterm was in 18 than, than anything else. Uh, but no, the, the, the registration demographic slide um, for the Republicans in California is, uh, continues to be pretty, pretty uh, telling, and it's not, it's not good news. By the way, Go one quick thing I'd say is, is interesting is, you know, we usually will get these districts uh, by August from the redistricting commission, yeah. which is, you know, the independent commission we now have for this process in California. But the Census Bureau announced this week they're not going to be able to provide the data uh, I think until September. So it's going to delay the districts getting drawn, which will delay a lot of political jockeying that we know will take place once they see what the districts are. So it's really going to compact um, what's normally a, a process that gives a little bit more breathing room for people to figure out where they're going to run. So one last question for you. So to bring it back to the Lincoln Project, the people that were involved in the Lincoln Project were generally longtime Republican consultants, campaign people. The Lincoln Project, for all intents and purposes, seems to be done. What do they do now? What happens to all these people that have, have they burned their bridges with the Republican Party? Are there people that will still want to bring them in? Are they going to have to try to find moderate Democrats? What do they do? What do you, what do you think I, happens to all those folks? I think it's a good question. I mean, they, they were going to... They were going to help the candidate against Netanyahu in Israel, but he fired him uh, this past week. Uh, I think they've made a lot of difficulty for themselves. Um, I don't know any Republicans that would, would hire him. Most of them are no longer Republicans. I mean, Steve Schmidt had left the Republican Party and was going to run Howard Schultz's presidential campaign, the Starbucks CEO, as an independent. And then Schultz didn't end up running. Um, I, you know... Uh, Stu Stevens has said he's left the party. Um, uh, Mike Madrid here in California is a friend. I think he's still Republican, but 
know, he hasn't worked for Republican for a while. Um, and I don't know, given the bad ethical behavior of, of all these principals in this organization, I don't know who would hire him uh, and, feel, and feel good about it. Um, and I don't think we've seen how deep the crater goes yet. Um, I think there's still a lot of you know, potential for, for Weaver victims to be telling more, more stories and what more specifically did they all know. So, no, I think they put themselves in a very difficult uh, position. I don't know what Steve Schmidt's ambition was, whether it was to be an MSNBC host or, or what have you, but um, there's going to have to be a rehab project, I think, for all these guys. Great. Rob Stutzman, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. This is enlightening as usual. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Good and, to visit you guys. Uh, this is John Howard saying goodbye. We'll see you next time around. Thank you. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.